0: back to the Meet St. Louis podcast, the show taking you behind the scenes of your favorite restaurants, breweries, and small businesses. I'm your host, Alexis Zotos with KMOV. A decade ago, Phil and Emily Wymore moved back to St. Louis with the dream of opening a craft brewery. In 2011, well, it was a year for the books when it comes to the craft beer scene. It was the year we saw perennial artisan ales, urban chestnut, Four Hands, and civil life all open their doors and we continue to see the craft beer scene grow over the last decade and it's still growing as evidenced by perennial's second location now open in webster groves the popular brewery teamed up with one of the area's most popular restaurants olive oak so this week we're bringing you a conversation with perennial co-founder emily wymore newly named head brewer of the new location chris knouse and olive and oak owner mark hinkle We gathered in the new location on Lockwood to talk all about beer, community, and collaboration. So let's meet everyone. Well, thank you all for joining us. We are sitting in the brand new perennial on Lockwood space. I mean, what's it like to see this finally completed emily uh, it's been an amazing journey and we are
1: super excited about how everything turned out um obviously you know it'll we're really excited to actually be able to let people in which we don't exactly know when that will be yet but um yeah it's john o'brien was the designer and he did an incredible job and it feels perfect
0: a brewery in this space had kind of been, Mark, your idea for a long time. Walk me through sort of how this partnership came to be.
2: Yeah, I mean, Greg and I had talked about this for a long time. And as soon as this building was, we knew it was going to hit the market and we were keeping an eye on it. And I mean, it was, it just screamed brewpub to us and it was something that not just Webster, but kind of the the county I guess needed as a whole and you know it just seemed like the perfect fit and when we we also knew from day one that we did not want to start brewing or get into brewing on our own it's not it's not we are good at drinking beer we know nothing about making beer I, I probably did some home brew like 15 years ago and it was absolutely terrible and I quit that pretty quickly and um, you know we've we've had a long relationship with perennial, and it was just uh, I think the brands align really well, um, and it was just a, a perfect fit. So, and when it, when I reached out to Emily, you know, I I just assumed that we'd hear, a, yeah, we've got a lot going on. Don't know if you know, but it was not that at all. And I, I think I, I I remember standing in my backyard and making that phone call, and I I remembered that just knowing they seemed as excited as we were by the, the idea at that point, so.
1: Yeah, I was standing on a street corner in New York when he called, <laughs> coming back from a work trip, and I it was raining, and I just immediately started crying, tears of joy, because it's, you know, it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. Perennial's been looking for a second location for years, and
0: really? this is perfect. Mm-hmm. What- what, do you remember the moment um, that you guys realized that you, you could expand, that you wanted to expand to another location? What point in the almost almost a decade of being open, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was more so, it was more about another retail location, just another outlet um, in a different neighborhood. And we love our neighborhood. We embrace it. Um Unfortunately, it's some sometimes people have a misconception that it's it's very far away. There's a, there's not a lot of foot traffic, obviously, but, um, you know, we wanted to get uh, somewhere that was a little bit more centrally located. So it wasn't necessarily about expanding our production volume. It was more about just having another retail outlet.
0: You guys are located in, in pretty deep South City, um, kind of right there as far on the city borders you can get. What initially brought you guys to that location when you and Phil moved back here mm-hmm. what in 2010? 2010
1: mm-hmm. yeah the um, we got
0: connected with the developer of the building
1: who uh, redeveloped the Tim lofts and got an incredible real estate deal um, and you know it's allowed us to expand like we have you know we started with just the About a third of the ground floor, and now we've taken over the whole ground floor um, of the building. So it's been a really nice opportunity for us in that way, for sure.
0: And, you know, while you say that there's a lot of people that say it's far, there are people that come from literally all around the country to come to your brewery. What is that like to hear people say they've driven hours and hours to come try your beer? I have to tell you, it, um,
1: never gets old, you know, and it never, um, um, uh, I don't really like word using the word humbling. I think it's kind of silly, but, um, it, at this moment, I can't really think of a better word because, you know, when we first opened, like the first time seeing your bottle on a shelf or a bar with a tap handle, um which our first draft account was Five Bistro. I'll never forget it. I yeah. delivered the tap handle myself. Um, but, you know, that was so special. And it never has lost its luster for me. Um, and it's an honor that people make a trip, you know, driving hours away, flying in at sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, obviously it's not just for us. Like St. Louis has become such a great beer destination. Um, and we're just happy to be a part of it.
0: Chris, I imagine you've gotten to talk to a lot of those people over the years yep, as the seller sure. manager. Uh, mm-hmm. Where do you remember a moment where you thought, wow, you've come a really long way? Um, I would
3: probably say it was the first time that I developed a recipe that kind of went to our full distribution footprint, um, you know, coming from no really, you know, schooling in brewing or anything like that, just learning from home brewing and, and kind of on site, Um it's something that was like when it first happened, and you know Emily was like, "Yeah, I think this beer is something that we want to kind of run with." Uh, it was it was really a, a pretty crazy feeling of, you know, being able to kind of conceptualize this beer, come up with a name, come up with you know the, kind of the whole thought process behind it. Um, I think it was Prism. I should know that, but I'm actually, um, <laughs> it's it, it's it was kind of a, a weird time, I guess, where we just like were trying to kind of come up with new brands, and I just happened to be the one that was kind of putting my foot forward. So there was kind of like a, a, a glut of them all that kind of happened at once. But yeah, it actually was. It was Purple Label Prism, which was Mosaic, which was actually the very first homebrew recipe that I ever wrote. Really? Yeah.
0: Which and then cool. to be able to, you know, as Mark said, his homebrewing didn't go so well for him, but yours. <laughs> my, my, my
3: first one didn't go well either. I don't think it does for anybody.
0: <laughs> what got you into brewing? Uh,
3: Some of that... I just was always really interested in um you know going to college obviously everybody you know i went to school in denver for a couple of years and uh everybody was was kind of like my first intro to like new belgium and left hand and oscar blues and all the really cool breweries that were out there um it's something that i just got really interested in and then one of um my wife's best friends uh, her husband um in college so he kind of got me into it and It was just something that kind of just, like, happened pretty quickly, and um, I've always been interested in in kind of science and those kinds of backgrounds, so if it's something that I can uh, produce while still, you know, fulfilling an interest is something that is, is, was was very interesting and intriguing to me at the end.
0: Was there a moment that you thought, oh, this could be something more than a hobby, I could actually do this Uh, as a job and a career?
3: I don't know if there's a direct moment, but I I do remember um, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, when I was finishing school and I had just like kind of started working at civil life, um, just in the kitchen one day a week and bartending. And, uh, I like kind of made an ultimatum and it was the summertime and I was like, all right, give me the summer. If I, if I don't have anything by the end of the summer, then, you know, my degree is in mass communication and English. I'll, I'll, I'll go do a copyright job. I'll go do work in marketing, something like that. So I kind of hassled with her or haggled with her and, uh, and got a, a summer out of it and ended up getting, uh, an internship and in, in working at, at civil life and kind of helping out cleaning kegs and doing some stuff there and then kind of pushing that forward into an internship at perennial which kind of spurred everything from there
0: so you got started as an intern with that Yep. yeah how long have you been with perennial now
3: uh emily we always talk about this i, I think it's like six years
0: mm-hmm.
3: um because it was kind of a, a weird time of once again of like when Corey was still producing side project beer at perennial but not an employee and then like so there was kind of like a round table of a couple of interns. Um and like kind of the direct starting time I guess is a little a little hazy uh now these days. But uh it, it was uh I, I think six years is a is a, is a good bet.
0: Did you feel like you had sort of hit the internship jackpot working oh, at perennial
3: totally, totally. And I, I I had a little bit of an in uh Tim, our head brewer, um we had some mutual friends from college. So um I just, I had an, you know, I had an inn and I would bring up homebrews to have Corey try and Phil try and, and Jonathan Moxie at the time when he was there and Andy Hilly when he was there. And uh, I guess they liked him and uh, I guess they liked me. So it was, uh, you know. <laughs> so I'm, it's worked out for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know I'm, I'm always in, I've always been in the belief from working in restaurants and just kind of like going through my life. Like you can, if, if you like the person, you can kind of work with them in any way. it's It's kind of developing these relationships first and especially in this industry, it's getting you know putting your foot forward taking you know jumping off that ledge kind of like putting yourself out there and if people like it they like great if they don't kind of having to deal with the criticism um and it's something that i've always enjoyed doing and yeah i guess it it worked out pretty well for me
0: (laughs) so you'll be moving over here to the lockwood location Mm -hmm. the head brewer here Uh, what does that mean for you to to be able to sort of really take the helm here
3: yeah I'm, i'm really excited about it um I've been keeping a catalog of of different recipes and different beer names that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and it's actually kind of been dwindling down from some brews that I've been doing at uh, the South City location. Uh, But it's something that I'm, I'm just really excited to kind of like push forward my own vision, and that's not to say that Emily and Phil don't allow me to do that currently, which they definitely do, but it's something that I can kind of mold from the ground floor up, like uh, especially in regards to like the labels that we've had. Um, I've always wanted to, have the, I've had this vision in my mind of having a singular artist and a singular kind of focal point uh, for the art, and we can kind of go into that later, but Mark has a really good friend, Peter Mannion, who does amazing art, and he kind of showed me some of the stuff, and it ended up being like exactly what I kind of had in mind for everything. So it's even kind of conceptualizing labels and going from there um, on top of the whole beer, and then being able to work in a beautiful space and have my input in the design and everything like that it's just been it's been a, a dream come true really
0: I mean how do you when you think about this partnership all three of you uh, you know combining Olive and Oak perennial an event space you know Mark how do you foresee this this bringing something new while keeping two very favorite spots true to what they've been
2: Yeah I think it's exciting I mean that was Moving Olive and Oak was a frightening idea at first. And I mean, at first the answer was no, like absolutely not. Olive and Oak's working. It's it's not mess with it. You know, there's it was the last thing. I, w- I wouldn't even talk about it when we first bought the building and we were putting together what this was going to look like down here. Um, but then, you know, we own the building. We leased down the street. And I, I it was J.O.B., of course, who said, you know, it's not... The it's not the four walls. It's what you guys do within that.
0: That people that I guess
2: yeah that, that makes Alvin Oak what it is and makes it special. And um, so we pretty and I, honestly, I thought Jen would kill me if I came home and said <laughs> we're gonna move Alvin Oak. I think you know and but she was surprisingly behind it. And I think Greg had the same feeling about Becky. And I guess when we went home and both wives supported the decision. You had to get
0: the wives... Yeah, you know, yeah. Okay, and I mean, not always. even
2: not even just supported, but both of them seemed really excited about it when I think they were both probably a little scared about us buying a 20,000 square foot building and taking on more after, you know, only, you know, at that point, Alvin Oak was three years old. Clover was just over a year old. It was a lot going on already. Um, so that was definitely a little frightening for everybody involved, but I think when, when they were enthusiastic about it, J.O.B. was, (laughs) you know, that's the man behind this space. Yeah. So he, he convinced us and, you know, and now I couldn't imagine us having not made that decision. I think the, the space, you know, I I think we wanted the building here, Hundred-year-old building, a lot of beautiful um, historic details to it that really led the design. And but we wanted to make make it still feel like Olive and Oak, you, you know. So I think you walk in and you can still see some of the 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 character from the old space. And but clearly, a little little grown-up version of it, I say.
0: And this was an old auto body shop, correct? Yeah, yeah. That sat empty for a while.
2: No, yeah, I mean, it, we. Bought it directly from the prior owners, so when they had zoning issues that forced them to to move. Which you know they weren't, I can't say they were happy about it, but they, they they knew it was inevitable, I think. And we we approached them, Greg, um, pretty aggressively. You know, hounded them until they they agreed to to work with us. And I think the, the promise to honor the building and not come in knock it down and build something else was, was a big deciding factor for the Garbers who owned Auto Beauty to, to work with us when I know there was a lot of interest in the property
0: yeah it's a very prime location right here in the middle of webster
2: it is and you know our when we wrote our first business plan for olive and oak it was always to do not just olive and oak but to do multiple concepts in this district so while the the growth was frightening and happening awfully quickly it was it was what we set out to do initially and um, that always i guess gave us a little bit of um, reinforcement in the decision that 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 you know this was, was always the plan it was always What we set out to do from day one and you know and then the opportunity to work with perennial to bring them in here for that other other experience that other um part of what we felt this district could use is just amazing so
0: well and emily you know as you mentioned it you're being introduced to a whole new part of st louis and as popular as your brand is with the craft beer lover do you find that there's still a lot of people in St. Louis who haven't tried your beer?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, we're just, our distribution model is just, you know, a little bit unique in the sense that we sell a a little bit of beer in a lot of places, as opposed to trying to be everything to everyone um, here locally. And obviously, like we always love, you know, exposing new craft beer customers to our brand. but, you know, our styles are not for everyone. Um, but that's kind of the nice thing about having, you know, the flexibility of the brew pub is we can see what's working for this clientele specifically. Um, you know, what are they getting excited about? Um, we're going to, you know, we'll have 15 beers on draft here. Um, so it'll allow Chris a lot of flexibility in that sense.
0: It's always really interesting to me. I, I remember Karen and Corey said this when we had Side Project on the podcast that, well, you know, in the craft beer community, you know, perennial side project, these names are, you know, sort of the holy grail. There's so many people that still aren't really introduced to craft beer. And those of us sort of in the craft beer world, it feels kind of crazy to think someone hasn't tried a, a perennial beer. Um, how do you talk to those maybe more um, non-craft beer drinkers, introducing them to maybe try something new? How does that conversation go for you? Yeah, I, I love it every time because, you know, um, it ranges
1: from anyone. I'll never forget. I had a couple of gentlemen walk into the bar at Perennial, maybe this was probably seven years ago. And they sat down and they said, well, why don't you have any American beer here? And I was like, well, it's made right behind you. So that <laughs> I'm not sure how much more American it could get. But knowing what they meant, of course, like. You know, guiding someone through that process, and sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. Um, but one of my favorite things is when we're pouring um, at you know at a festival when you're you know talking to people constantly, and you have all this great opportunity to introduce someone you know someone to something that they would have never otherwise tried. And um, our imperial stouts are you know obviously like kind of what we're most well known for. Um, watching people's eyes you know, just watching that experience shock someone when they have in their minds, I don't like dark beer. I don't like Guinness. I would never, you know, order this on a menu, but watching them experience that and like opening their eyes to like that whole new world of beer that, you know, in a lot of ways doesn't actually taste like beer. um, That's really a lot of fun.
0: And those stouts have have really, um, you know, we talked about people traveling from all over the country to try those stouts. I mean, your Barrel Age program is is pretty incredible. How do you see that expanding, growing here at the new space?
3: Um, so it'll be pretty limited. Um, I'm working on kind of keeping it similar, but keeping it different. Like I wouldn't expect me for me to make a Braxis here, which is, you know, our, our our ancho, chili, cinnamon, kind of Mexican chocolate style stout, um, just because I don't see why there'd be a point to that. Um, we kind of run our stout program in a way that we have a very similar recipe and then add different adjuncts um, to make different brands, which is a nice way because that base beer is just so perfect for adding different things to it. Um, something that I've kind of been thinking about is, is probably developing a, a touch of a different recipe just to have my own spin here. Um, kind of using the years of experience of brewing a lot of stout over there and kind of being able to fine tune it here and there, um, which I'm really excited about. Uh, as far as barrel aging going, uh, it mostly is gonna be just um, spirit barrel aged stuff, so stouts. I-, I was kind of tinkering with the idea of getting some mixed cultures uh, in here, but then I'm really just frightened of that being such a small space and kind of contaminating other things. So.
0: For people who don't know that much about mm. brewing, talk about what you mean by that. Yeah, what, so, why it makes a difference, the size of the space.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, so one thing, it'll kind of be a compound answer. So one, one thing that has been really beneficial uh, of our South City location is that we are able to expand and thus kind of isolate um, our clean beer program, as we'll say, to our funky beer program. Um, So, when we're making these sour beers, there's a couple different ways of doing it. Um, You can quick sour, uh, which is basically overnight, with, it uses lactobacillus, which is gonna be the souring bacteria in in yogurt. Um, Or you can use different kind of ambient bacteria, um, wild yeasts, and other uh, factors that will create a long aging souring process. Uh, Most of those are gonna be aged in oak, uh, wine barrels, or fooders, Um, and those yeast and bacterias can contaminate beers that you don't want to become sour and, and ruin equipment and ruin beers. And that's something that I just, with the space being the brewery, the brew pub space in the back being so small, the brewery itself, uh, it's just something that I, I just don't really necessarily want to risk, especially when we have the space to do it at the original location.
0: And so Emily mentioned you guys are going to have 15 beers on tap here, so will there be a combination of, of new ones coming from this location as well as pulling from um, the South City location?
3: Yeah, I, we haven't necessarily figured that uh, that as far out, but I, I kind of have a vision in my mind of, of having 10 to 12 beers made in-house here and then filling out the rest of them from uh, South City because it would be silly not to have Cezanne de Lee or Southside Blonde or Pilsner or one of those, you know, kind of year-round beers, or you'll be able to have Abraxas and Coffee Stout and, you know, whatever stout du jour is, uh, of the of the day is. So, um, yeah.
0: Uh, do you imagine, um, you know, when we're talking about some of those stouts, Abraxas, Maman, that people, you know, really crave, for people who maybe haven't been to Perennial and been to a beer release, um, you know, Explain to them what it's like for you guys to see those lines show up outside of the brewery when you announce that those releases are coming. <laughs> I know it's stressful. I, I, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'll start. Um, for, for me,
3: it, it's funny for me because I see it in in the other brewers. We kind of see it, see a little more of how the day progresses. You know, we've had to make sure people don't camp out. We've had to set times where people get there. If it's in the summertime, people are pitching tents on our patio and getting barbecue pits out, and it, it's like a whole-day thing. So it's it's interesting if I'm brewing to get there at 6 o'clock in the morning and see people like waiting in their cars and have, watching me walk up and then them scurrying to be the first in line and then sitting there and inevitably drinking a couple of beers uh, and then waiting until the release starts at 4 and then waited all this time to stand in a line and then just to go home. It's it's a, It's a very, very... Again, I don't want to necessarily use the word humbling, but it is. It's like it, it, the first time I saw a big line for Bailey Shippaxis or Maman or, or whatever the release was, and you know, and you see it wrapping around the building, and people are like buying their bottle and like high fiving each other and and just super excited. It's a big it's, win. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh it's pretty cool for sure.
0: Emily, when you guys started Perennial, uh, did you? Foresee not only the excitement that would grow around your brewery, but just also the changes to our craft beer scene in general here in St. Louis?
1: Um, the,
0: let's see. <laughs> I guess it's hard to say. Did you imagine it? Yeah, you kind of no, it but.
1: yeah, definitely not. I mean, our, our business has evolved just like everyone's has, you know, so much um, since we started. And, you know, there's a fine balance between doing what you love and the beers that you love and making what we originally, you know, said that our business model was going to look like, um, which a lot of that has stayed the same. You know, um, Hamel beer was our first beer, saison de Lis, Southside Blonde, all three of those are still in production. Um, So, you know, when we kind of set out to do Belgian style session beers, that's still a big part of who we are, but Unfortunately, um, you know, the excitement uh, surrounding those beers is not what we would want them, what it wanted it to be necessarily. So that's when you kind of have to, you know, listen to the market and respond. And if they're latching on to your Imperial Stout, then you should
0: probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> Walk me back to when you guys move back here. What made you move back to St. Louis and and want to start a brewery right there at the time when you know some of the big breweries were you know what we call big breweries now in terms of popular craft breweries were all getting started mm-hmm. can you walk me back to to 2010 2011 when you thought about opening
1: yeah it's so funny so Phil um left Goose Island to become the head brewer at Half Acre, um, and. It, everyone in that employment arrangement was aware that Phil was working on his own uh, business plan as well. So that was that was really neat because he was able to get first-hand experience with a relative startup um, and with, you know, full, full disclosure that he was doing his own thing. We never uh, had the intention of staying in Chicago. Um, mostly just because of, you know, the barrier to entry, the amount of money that we would have had to raise would have been, you know, significantly more. Um, And my family's from here. Um, So, yeah, we ended up moving back in 2010. But at that point in time, you know, the perennial business plan was pretty well solidified. um, And we started build out, you know, pretty much right away.
0: Where did the name come from?
1: Um, Phil named Perennial as um, kind of the intention was uh, you know something that is enduring um, and you know that's kind of what we were hoping for our brand and same thing the the way that it ties into the ginkgo leaf is um, you know the ginkgo leaf is or the ginkgo tree is a really unique has a really unique lineage and so not only did we want to, you know, bring something new and unique to the table, um, but also we wanted it to endure.
0: Well, and enduring it has, and and really, when we think about perennial, and you know, you talk about the beers that you guys started with to the beers that you know people truly love and seek out each year. You also have those collaborations. I know you guys have done a collaboration with Olive and Oak, and kind of talk to us about how those come to be, and and kind of. How cool that is to collaborate with other restaurants um, and other breweries.
3: Yeah, so uh, as far as, you know, collaborating with restaurants, it's kind of, you know, talking to either the owner, or, as in the case here, or, or a chef or something, someone that has, or the, the person who runs the bar program. Um, we've done kind of all different walks of, of the collaboration process. And it's kind of finding a common ground on things that you know that, you would like and, and also kind of adhering to what the restaurant wants. Um, for the case for Ali Ali for you, we knew that Mark likes sessionable hoppy beers, so that it was kind of not a question that that's what <laughs> we would make. Um, and that's a beer that has evolved over time for sure. We've kind of used it as an avenue to work with different hopping combinations to now I've kind of had it solidified um, for what is gonna be made here always. Um, and something that I, 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 it's really been cool to kind of watch the whole the beer kind of evolve over time, and, and now end with something that I think everybody is, is pretty excited and happy with.
0: Yeah, Mark, what was that like to get to kind of talk to Perennial about creating a beer for this space? That's that got that has such a special meaning to you and your family. I mean,
2: it was amazing. I mean, we actually we did a beer back at Annie Gunn's in two thousand eleven or twelve. I mean, it was pretty early on when I was out there and reached out, and um, I had been working on kind of un-A-B-ing their draft program out there a little <laughs> bit. Um, and, you know, Perennial was one we worked with from day one, and that was a no-brainer to talk to them, and they were excited about the collaboration then. And, uh, you know, we did a it was a chamberson verju mm-hmm. um, wheat, I think, so yeah. almost kind of like a rosé, but we did, dealt with Missouri wine, which was... You know wine obviously a big focus today in the guns and a lot of local wineries we worked with out there so it was a good kind of bringing in adam Pookta winery into the collaboration a little bit as well using some of their verju and um you know and then for ollie we started doing that not long after olive and oak opened up and it was like like chris said that's the type of beer i drink and um was a and was popular with our clientele too so it was a it was a perfect match again there and then to see it come together in cans and that was the first piece of label art we picked from Peter Mannion. Um, so bringing, bringing all those things kind of full circle was really cool to, to launch that in cans right as we were getting ready to launch this. Um, it's, it's definitely developed a pretty solid following with our the Olive and Oak clientele and hopefully beyond now.
0: Um, And for maybe people who don't know your story, Mark, and the story behind Olive and Oak and the name and the name for this beer, can you kind of talk to us about what that means to have that name now recognized by so many people? Yeah,
2: so we lost our son, Oliver, Ollie, to a congenital heart defect when he was just over a year old. Um, Our our business partners, Greg and Becky, they lost their son, Oaks, to a congenital heart defect about the same age and really close to the same time, and we met after the fact. Um, so Olive and Oak named after Ollie and Oaks and, um, you know, we, we both have foundations too. And I know like hearing Ollie's name, we've, we've always, um, approached his loss very openly. So I guess just, uh.
0: It's incredible to see this community come together in so many ways to support your family and so many families like yours
2: totally no we've we've always thought it was important and um, to try to help and it's it's perennial and this partnership has always helped support the cause which you know we've we've been able to do a lot of great work because of the support of the foundation and and Dolly
0: that's one thing I think that we see in st. Louis whether it's a collaboration between businesses or a collaboration with charities and foundations this city, truly loves to give back, Um, you know, throughout your years, I know you guys have helped in so many different um, charities and events and fundraisers. What's that like? You've mentioned your family, Emily is from here to be able to see that camaraderie in the St. Louis community on so many levels.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. And I think, you know, now, especially there's so many efforts, um, you know, just for, Surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement, and you know, so many opportunities, and I think it's really been special to see, um, kind of, you know, business owners use their um, not power, but use the opportunity to to give back, and you know, the craft beer community in particular recently. Um, you know, we're we're now a part of three different projects, um, three different beer collaboration projects. Um, you know, just in the last few months, uh, including the Black is Beautiful project, which... I guess
3: four, really, with including the All Together. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. the other half one, so... So,
0: yeah, yeah. talk about those collaborations. Talk about that Black is Beautiful collaboration, what that is, and how it's helping.
3: Yeah, so uh, Black is Beautiful um, is something that uh, some of our friends uh, from Weathered Souls, it's a brewery down in, in Houston um marcus who's one of the owners uh he's come up to perennial a a number of times he comes up to st louis a lot um he's always been like an incredible supporter of our brand and and the reaction that he had when we said that we were interested in in participating was was like just an incredible thing like he was so excited about it um, and kind of mentioned our take on what we were kind of doing with it so a little background they sent out um, a stout recipe to everybody that they wanted to brew, uh, but also kind of gave breweries liberties to to create their own and their own recipe and kind of change things up a little bit. So for ours, we took um, our our base stout recipe um, and then hand selected uh, a small portion of uh, spirit barrel aged beers. Um, the oldest of which, I think, if I remember correctly, was about 26 months, um, some 19 month old uh, stout, um, and then are blending that with the fresh stout. So 20% barrel aged stout, 80% fresh stout. Um, and putting it into bottles, and something that Emily and I have been talking about doing uh, for a long time, and have been interested in, it was kind of just a perfect opportunity to um, help raise some money for the uh, ACLU of Missouri. So it'll be great.
0: I mean, the collaboration of this craft beer scene in St. Louis, the restaurant scene in general, is something that we hear time and time again in every episode that we do. Um, you know, so many of the brewers that we've had on have talked about how instrumental. Perennial has been in terms of them not only wanting to to open breweries here in the St. Louis area, but also just, um, you know, that that collaboration that this city is is really all about lifting each other up when you hear that from other brewers, from other restaurant owners, what goes through your mind?
3: Uh, For me, it's 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 something that is it's it's just a really cool feeling of of knowing that your peers respect what you do and are willing to try new things with you and, and want to do it and people want to like I, I want second shift and side project and forehands and schlafly and everybody to do just as well as as we do you know there's 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 competition of course like like sure. anything else but it, it's nothing that that is that is cutthroat by any means or. Or at least in my experience that, that I've that I've ever felt. Um, and that goes for locally. That goes for for regionally. That goes for nationally. And for us, we've l- luckily met some uh, some breweries internationally that, that we've collaborated with. Um, I did one in the Netherlands a couple summers ago, which is it's just crazy that someone from the Netherlands can find your beer and want to like contact you and be like, hey, you're coming to a festival in Copenhagen? When you you want to come to our town called Harlem right outside of Amsterdam and make a beer with us? And it's like. Of course. Why, why would we not want
0: to? <laughs> Well, and it helps put St. Louis yeah, on the map. Definitely. On the mm-hmm. international map. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. To hear someone, you know, in the Netherlands saying that they know about St. Louis yeah. because of Perennial Brewery.
2: Yeah, it's crazy,
0: the pandemic, it's not clear exactly when you'll be able to sit inside at the new bar of the perennial on Lockwood location, but you can visit for lunch on the patio and of course, pick up some of their beer curbside and you can always head down south to their original location in South City. As for Olive and Oak, they're doing dinner on their patio. And this is just your reminder that right now we need to realize restaurants and small businesses are continuing to struggle and make things work during this pandemic. It continues to be more important than ever to support local whenever you can. This episode was produced and edited by JJ Bailey.